Community Sangha Sangha is the third of the three jewels. Loosely translated, it means community. It's where Buddha and Dharma find their expression, where we're supported in putting those principles into action. It's a community of friends practicing the Dharma together in order to develop our own awareness and maintain it. The traditional definition of Sangha originally described monastic communities of ordained monks and nuns, but in many Buddhist traditions it has evolved to include the wider spiritual community. For us, our Sangha is our community of both Dharma practice and recovery. We are decentralized and leaderless, and there are no rules to follow other than that the meeting should be an open, safe, and accessible space that tries to uphold our core principles of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity. The advice in this chapter comes from the collective experience of hundreds of local groups, and so it's offered in the spirit of friendly guidance rather than direction. The essence of Sangha is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, integrity, and loving-kindness. Recovery begins when we learn to pay attention to and investigate experience in the present moment. It's through the Sangha that we first learn to be fully present, that we stop trying to satisfy our craving and turn to an understanding of our thoughts, feelings, sense, experience, and actions that includes others. This understanding is fundamentally relational. Our actions have consequences on not only our own lives, but also on the people we meet and share experiences with. Many of us learned this the hard way, by hurting the ones we loved while we were in active addiction. A core part of our recovery includes making amends to those we have hurt, including ourselves. As we've seen, our recovery includes the wise intention to heal the suffering we have caused others and to act wisely to avoid creating the same suffering in the future. Sangha provides the opportunity to practice a central part of recovery, remembering. Remembering means the wholesome reflection that supports us in our recovery and energizes our practice of compassion, loving-kindness, generosity, and forgiveness. Sharing these experiences with others who are also struggling with addictive behaviors helps give us confidence in our own ability to recover our true nature, our potential for awakening. Sangha enlarges our perspective and begins to give us the self-confidence and self-respect that will let us reflect on the ups and downs of recovery without discouragement or hopelessness. When we feel inspired to practice with wise friends, we can trust them to point out when we fall short of our intentions, and we can be honest with ourselves. The teachings of the Buddha clearly state, over and over again, that this is not just something we can do on our own. And many programs of recovery, including our own, stress the importance of going to meetings and working with others in recovery. This is often something we resist, and not without reason. Some meetings are boring. Some ask us to believe things that we feel are untrue, and some are depressing or intimidating or unwelcoming for a lot of reasons. But it's with the support of others that so many of us have found relief from the suffering and isolation brought on by our addictions. And it's through being of service that we've been able to get out of our own heads 
And it's through being of service that we've been able to get out of our own heads and experience a more sustainable and wholesome joy than our addictions provided. Many of us have found that there's a quality to our meditations that's different when practiced with a group. Particularly when we're getting started, it can be easy to give up or space out after a few minutes. Practicing with others can often give us the motivation to stick with it long enough to start experiencing some of the benefits of practice. And through sharing our experience and listening to what others have to say, we can see how we're not alone in a lot of our challenges. This can come as a welcome surprise after years of suffering shame and feeling like an outcast. Many of us, having habitually isolated ourselves, have found that sharing silence at a meeting creates an atmosphere of trust and can be a calming way to get used to being with others. No one is required to speak or participate in meetings. Passing is always an option when it comes time to share. There's never any requirement to believe in anything, to identify yourself in any way, much less to become a Buddhist or a serious practitioner. The wisdom and tools are available to everyone wherever they are on their path. But not every meeting is going to be a fit for every person. You may live in an area where there are several different options to choose from, or there may be only a single recovery meeting near you, or none at all. Fortunately, there are also online meetings, many of which can be joined by phone. You can also start your own meeting. However you find them, Trust that there are wise friends and a sangha out there for you. Isolation and Connection Addiction and addictive behavior can create people without roots. Some of us have been uprooted from our families and from society. We wander around, feeling as though we're not quite whole, because our addictions feed our isolation and loneliness. Many come from broken families and feel rejected by society or have been isolated from society through incarceration or institutionalization. Not all of us have dissociated to that degree, but we do tend to live on the margins, looking for a home, for something to belong to. A community of practice, a sangha, can provide a second chance to someone who's become alienated from society or just a comfortable place to bring all of ourselves including parts we don't usually share with others. If the community of practice is organized with a friendly, warm atmosphere, we can find support for our practice and recovery. In our addictions, we self-medicated or engaged in behaviors that helped us deal with the pain of separation. The relief was temporary, of course, often leaving us more lonely and isolated than before. Yet we returned to it again and again. For many of us, it was the only way we knew to relieve the pain, even in sobriety, when faced with well-meaning but insistent people telling us how to overcome our addictions, the instinct for many of us is to keep to ourselves. It's a habitual way of being in the world that a lot of us share. It wasn't just getting high, though for a lot of people in this fellowship and outside it, that was the main road we took to escape. There were other traps that snagged us even if we never struggled with substances, sex, food, self-harm, social media. We may have tried to get help from those compulsions, 
but often found others minimizing or trivializing them, especially in comparison to drug or alcohol abuse. For those of us whose primary addictions are around behaviors and processes, we may have felt alienated and excluded from recovery itself. Many of us found ourselves like raw, exposed nerves when we stopped using those ways to escape, and sometimes the last place we wanted to be was in a room with strangers and a circle of chairs all facing each other, talking about how we can't drink or use or participate in our destructive behaviors anymore. The paradox is that it's in that kind of space, where we're accepted as we are, that we can begin to let go of our reflex to hide. Many of us lost the ability, if we ever had it, to form relationships without the social lubricant of alcohol or drugs. Sometimes that was because we dealt with rejection, trauma, or loss at an early age and became anxious and avoidant around others. Or maybe we just felt different than everyone else since the day we were born or came from a small community or a big family and got sick of people nosing into our business. Whatever reasons we had to isolate, we got to a point where it stopped serving us. The substances and behaviors we used to protect ourselves began to harm ourselves and others. We drove people away to be safe, and as a result, we became even more lonely. Some of us learned to isolate for good reason. People we loved and trusted harmed us in terrible ways. Some of us lived in communities and families where we constantly felt unsafe, where trusting anybody too much could be costly. In recovery, we're making the scary, difficult, and brave decision to try it out again. All humans are driven from birth to seek close human contact. When we're deprived of it and even begin to lose the ability to find it, we suffer and become vulnerable to craving and addictive behavior. The mindfulness techniques and insights that the Buddha taught are key to recovering this ability, but it's not something we have to do alone. In fact, having people to help and support us on the path is an integral part of the teachings. So, as it turns out, the solution and the way to get to the solution are actually one and the same. A lot of us are perennial outsiders. We felt, often with some justification, that we have been failed and abandoned by schools, by religious institutions or the government, and often by our own families. As a result, we came to mistrust organizations and groups, and even the idea of belonging itself. The double bind there, of course, is that because we never allow anyone to get to know us, we cut off the possibility of ever belonging. The Buddha taught that nothing and nobody exists on its own. He said, Since this exists, that exists, and since this does not exist, that does not exist. We're connected to other people through the way we interact, through the air we share, through our existence together in nature. Trying to ignore or resist this interconnection is basically trying to destroy something which already exists. This doesn't mean that we're literally dependent on others for our life and our existence, but that the life and existence of everybody and everything develops through their relationships with things outside themselves, the food they eat, 
the environment they live in, the history and the circumstances of their world. It's a great web of being that each of us is connected to without any effort of our own. And being aware of that connection gives us space to have meaningful and positive relationships with others. It is a choice that each of us has to decide what we want to do with the reality of our connection. Sangha, in a very broad sense, means being willing to let other people in, to let them matter. To do that, we have to be willing for others to let us in. When we can even consider the possibility of that happening, there's the potential for us to move toward liberation, and the benefits are felt almost immediately. All of us, during our development and experience of life, had experience that make us doubt our own voice, or the value or wisdom of expressing that voice. Many of these doubts contributed to the suffering we experienced during addiction and continue to make it difficult to connect to our own recovery. Our meetings are intended as places where we can feel safe and comfortable authentically expressing what we really feel and experience. However, many of us, because of prior experience and experiences in both social settings and the recovery community, struggle with this a lot. We often struggle just to understand our feelings and experiences. The Sangha allows us to start to explore the ways we can find and authentically express our voices, to value our own voices, and to be sure that our voices are heard. Your recovery Sangha can be one that focuses on helping and encouraging those many voices. In the Buddhist tradition, it's not just that we don't have to do this work alone, it's that we need the support of others on the path to waking up. In a famous story, the Buddha's cousin and assistant, Ananda, came to visit him and remarked, This is half of the holy life, having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues. The Buddha disagreed, saying that having admirable people as friends, companions, and colleagues is actually the whole of holy life. When we come together to talk honestly about ourselves and what happened in our lives, something very powerful can happen. When we see people committing to be who they truly are in all their imperfections and their longing to be free, our hearts naturally begin to open because their realness allows us to be more real. In their vulnerability, our wise, admirable friends give us the freedom to be vulnerable ourselves and to speak our own truths. So our Sangha becomes the place where we are supported and encouraged to stay on the path, even when it's challenging or our progress seems stuck. Our wise friends are, without words, telling us, that if we keep going, so will they. And often, that makes all the difference. Working with Others For many of us in early recovery, asking for help feels almost impossible. But we have found, as difficult as it can be, that it can literally save our lives, and that with practice, it becomes easier. However, Asking for help is not just important because it may get results. At times, in fact, it might not. Even with a lot of help and support, 
things can still stand in our way. Sometimes, what we want from the world and from ourselves is just more than what's available right then. However, even if asking for help may not always get us what we want, it will always help get us through. When we practice accepting help from people who are offering to help, we become just a little bit more open and a little less stuck. It's the decision to reach out as much as the answer we receive that can give us what we need to move forward. Nevertheless, that decision is often a heavy lift for us. Many of us have done things during our active addictions that we're not proud of. Some of the decisions we made in the past have far-reaching consequences that continue to impact our lives even after we begin our recovery. We may have worn a mask of competence or fearlessness or blamelessness, and the fear of what might happen when we take the mask off may keep us from reaching out. We may be afraid that if we ask people in our lives for help with financial problems, legal trouble, or any of those sorts of issues, we might lose them. We might worry that they will no longer respect us or accept us once the mask is gone, because our fear is that we'll be revealed as broken, fundamentally flawed people. We may even be afraid that there's just nothing behind the mask, that we're simply empty underneath. We practice compassion for all beings, including ourselves, to see the truth beneath those fears, that there is a loving and lovable heart within all of us. We come to see clearly that those around us feel more pain watching us struggle alone than they would if we let them in. And, of course, by shutting people out and refusing to let them see our struggles, we'll often bring about the loss and isolation that we're trying to avoid in the first place. So, in view of our own suffering and the pain we can cause to those closest to us, we can see that asking for help is not selfish. In fact, it is an act of great compassion to ourselves and others. Those who have shared the pain of addiction and isolation understand the fear and shame better than we might imagine. Through listening at meetings and sharing our own experiences, we begin to see how we're not uniquely broken or flawed, and it's often easier to ask for help from someone other than those people you're closest with. In addition to the people in your sangha, there may be counselors and other professionals in your community who can be a resource when you need someone with experience and a greater degree of objectivity. Some clinics and universities even offer community counseling on a sliding pay scale, so you may not have to eliminate that option just for financial reasons. And if you are able to make an appointment, know that some fear and reluctance is perfectly natural, and it shouldn't be a reason to cancel the session. Of course, we know intellectually that our problems become easier to face when we have help, but emotionally, we may still feel fear. Here again, it's the decision to give it a try that may be more valuable than the outcome of the meeting itself. We learn that letting people in and being a little more vulnerable is not as frightening as we may have thought. In fact, we may often find that it's less daunting than the idea of dealing with our problems all by ourselves.
When we make a practice of asking for help, we frequently find that it improves both the quantity and quality of our relationships in general. Even if you don't become personally close with people in your sangha outside of meetings, you may find that you are able to connect with more people on a deep level, and that could be something entirely new in your life. Even if you are seeking help from a clergy person, a therapist, or some other sort of professional, notice how opening up to another person affects how much you trust them. Is there a deepening of respect and feeling of safety as your ability to be transparent grows? This confidence and security may also bring benefits to your other personal relationships. Try to notice these changes as they arise and give yourself credit for taking steps that are often difficult. It's pretty common to worry that sharing your problems with people will cause them to look down on you, burden them with your baggage, or even upset them in some way. And while we must be honest in acknowledging that may be a risk, we also know that remaining isolated can be a much greater risk to ourselves and to others. In general, there is a lot of truth in the cliché that burdens are lighter when they're shared. Most of us have felt like an enormous weight has been removed from our shoulders when we made the choice to not be alone with our problems anymore. And, as we experience that relief, we find that asking for help becomes easier and easier. The truth for many of us is that when we first come into recovery, we may not immediately have access to our inner wisdom. Many of us have been relying on the delusion of fear and shame and reactivity as our guides in life. It takes time to lift those veils, to dig through those layers, in order to break those habits and begin to see clearly. For many of us, it takes time to be able to trust ourselves again, but we can look to our sangha, to our community of wise friends on the path for guidance and wisdom. When we don't know what to do, when we lose faith that we can make it through this craving, when we're lost in obsession and can't make sense of our own minds and hearts, when the world feels upside down, when we are crawling out of our skin with discomfort, when we have no idea what the next step is, this is when we can and must reach out to our Sangha for help, because they've gone through what we have, they've made it to the other side, and they can show us how. Wise Friends and Mentors Many, if not most, recovery meetings are focused on meditating together, reading literature, or exploring specific topics and sharing. There are no requirements for attendance other than a respectful curiosity, and attending meetings are a great opportunity for newcomers to visit and learn about the program. Sometimes, those who have decided to commit to this program of recovery want more support on the path. This is where the idea of a wise friend or mentor comes in. The Buddha talked about four kinds of friends. The helpful friend, the kind of friend who sticks with you through good times and bad, the compassionate friend, and the mentor. A wise friend supports us through example, kindness, and compassion. It can be anyone in the Sangha who we trust to act as a guide, a supporter, a partner, or just a fellow traveler on the path. 
This relationship may take many forms, but it is one built on honesty, compassion, healthy boundaries, and a shared intention to support one another's recovery. For some of us, especially newcomers, it's helpful to work with a mentor, a wise friend who's been following the program for a while, who gives support, is there to reach out to when times get tough, and can help hold us accountable. It's not a formal position. Nobody is certified or authorized to be a mentor. They are just members of the community freely sharing their journey through the Four Truths and Eightfold Path. Everybody decides for themselves if they want to collaborate with someone else on their path, understanding that they must ultimately do the work of recovery themselves. Clear communication about expectations from both people is important. There are no strict rules, but if you are asked to help someone else in this way, it's a good idea to have someone who's done it before to support you. It's also strongly encouraged that you commit to the five precepts, at least as far as the supportive relationship is concerned. Many people form study or practice groups in addition to regular meetings in order to give and receive help from wise friends on their path of recovery. Some folks call these Kalyana Mita groups the Pali term for wise or admirable friends. Some call them Dharma buddies. Whatever the name, people gather to explore particular aspects of the path in a smaller group, like practicing longer periods of sitting meditation, studying the Buddhist texts, or listening to recorded Dharma talks. There's no one way to run these sort of groups, and no special experience is needed to start one. You can experiment for yourselves, and also look at the experience of established groups for ideas. There are also groups that are formed to support each other in writing inquiries or investigations of how their addictive behavior led to suffering. This is a powerful technique for self-discovery and liberation, and like most things in this program, there is no one right way to do it. Some approach it in the same way as inventories in 12-step programs, and some don't. The goal is not to cause shame or to dwell on past traumas, but rather to turn toward the pain and confusion we have been running from and learn to meet it with kindness, forgiveness, and compassion. You may consider using the questions for inquiry in this book as a starting place for your own exploration and there are also a number of other written formats available. If you need help, know that you're part of the broader community of wise friends, the Sangha of people using Buddhism for recovery. It's strongly encouraged for at least one person in the group to have someone they can check in with about best practices and safety, especially when we are working with difficult aspects of our pasts. Holding safe space will require wisdom and compassion from all members, at any time, in groups, as well as in every aspect of our lives, the reminder is that when in doubt, we can be present and we can be kind. Service and Generosity Different schools of Buddhism have slightly different lists of strengths or good qualities that lead a person to enlightenment. First, on every one of those lists, though, is dana, or generosity. We often think of generosity in terms of money, and many groups use the word dana to describe the donations that members give to help support the meeting. In the Buddhist tradition, though, dana is any act of giving, 
not just money, but also food, time, or our attention, without expecting anything in return. You may already be familiar with the emphasis that many recovery programs put on service, which is perfectly in line with this ancient teaching. The merit of this practice has been central to many religions and philosophies down through the centuries. Generosity with our time, energy, and attention is not only of benefit to others on this path. As we become more generous, it also helps us loosen the grip of greed and attachment that cause so much of our own suffering. From the first time we mindfully put a couple of dollars in the offering bowl or introduce ourselves to a newcomer after a meeting, we can start to feel the benefit of being generous without asking for thanks. In our meditation practice, we learn through direct experience how our bodies and our wealth are impermanent, and this insight makes us more willing to do good with them while we still have them. Sharing our experience at a meeting, or even simply meditating along with others and giving our silent encouragement and support, is an act of kindness that benefits both ourselves and our Sangha. Many of us have trained ourselves for years to be vigilant about being taken advantage of or ripped off. In some cases, this has certainly been justified, and there will always be times where we will need to set and maintain healthy boundaries. But as our practice deepens, we're able to do so with an attitude of discernment and compassion. In the Buddhist teachings, generosity is not a commandment or a you should, or an unrealistic standard that people are expected to measure themselves by and find themselves falling short. It is, instead, a description of our true nature, of the open and loving hearts that have always been within us, but that have been covered up for so long that they were almost lost to us. The practice helps us to recover this original nature. As we try to be more and more generous in our meetings and in our lives, we learn to trust our own innate kindness, and we build up confidence that we can give of ourselves to others and still be safe. We continually test what we think are our limitations and grow in self-esteem, self-respect, and well-being as we see these limitations for what they are, defensive strategies that may once have been necessary, but which have hardened into the handcuffs of habit. The voice of our attachments may say, I don't want to put my hard-earned money in that bowl, or maybe I'll do this act of service, but I'll stop if people don't show enough appreciation. As we practice generosity, we see how these fears are transparent, how they have kept us small. We begin to realize that this practice is really about creating more space in our hearts and minds. As we notice our limits and allow ourselves to go beyond them, our heart-minds become more expansive, more spacious, and composed. This brings us greater feelings of happiness and self-respect and gives our practice more strength and flexibility to look at the conditions of our lives and our recovery. We can see the benefits of such practice when we think about the opposite of this openness, about times when our minds and hearts have been closed and protective. We felt on edge, uneasy, and we usually didn't like ourselves very much. In that kind of a state, 
we had very few resources to deal with any discomfort or confusion. We were often thrown off balance by even small setbacks. Painful or difficult experiences often overwhelmed us and sent us running for the temporary relief of substances or behaviors. As we get more comfortable with a generous open heart, we experience more balance and ease. When something unpleasant arises, we don't have to worry that it's going to crush us or overpower us. We have a refuge we can increasingly rely on in times of trouble. And when a pleasant experience arises, we don't cling to it as desperately, because we don't actually need it to feel good about ourselves. We also practice generosity to be of service to others, to extend healing and happiness to all beings, and to try in some small way to reduce the suffering in this world. What we learn as we continue to work with generosity is that the inner practice of recognizing the emptiness of our attachments and building up resilience is one and the same as the outer practice of giving and service.